Our mission here at Crosspoint Baptist Church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. Um, we are going to start a new series today, and it's only a one-sermon series, through the Old Testament book of Obadiah. And I'm, I'm calling this message, The Pride Goes Before the Fall. Um, little, little testimony time for myself here. When, when I became a pastor, when I was called to preach, I set a goal for myself. Now, that being said, no one set this goal for me. It was a goal I set for myself. Nobody made me do this. But my goal, I wanted to preach from Genesis through Revelation. Now, when I say that, I mean like every chapter, every verse, line by line, verse by verse. I want to get it all done. Now, there's a lot of preachers that don't do that. Okay, there, there's a lot of preachers that just have like a topical series and, and they preach so many and then when they get done saying what they're going to say, they're, they're pretty much done. Okay, that's why there's a lot of pastors, not all pastors, but there's some pastors, they come to a church and they preach for about three years and then they have to move on to another church because they've ran out of things to say. Okay, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> the truth is I'm not running out of messages. Here's the truth. I'm running out of time. Because I don't have enough time left in my pastoral career to preach the other thing. I'm going to end up retiring or die before I get through this whole thing. But I'm going to do my very, very best to try to see how much of the Bible I can preach. The reason I chose to do this, I was inspired by a very famous Southern Baptist preacher by the name of uh, Dr. W.A. Criswell. Criswell was the pastor at First Baptist Dallas from 1944 until 1990. So 46 years this man was their pastor. And I was told it took him 17 years to preach through the Bible. Uh, I, I mean, for, he began his ministry, I was told. I wasn't there. Uh, he began preaching in Genesis. And then 17 years later, he finished Revelation. And so they did that for so long. The people eventually stopped asking, hey, when did you join? But they would say, where were we when you joined? Yeah, so like people like, oh, I joined when we were in the book of Matthew, or I joined when we were in Exodus. Like, ooh, you've been a member a long time. Well, <laughs> and if you're thinking, that's a long time to preach through the Bible. No, that's actually really, really fast, okay? At First Baptist Dallas, they didn't have one Sunday morning service. In fact, they didn't have two Sunday morning services. They had three Sunday morning services. And then they also had Wednesday night, and they had a Wednesday night service. And here's the deal. Dr. Criswell preached every single sermon, every, every service. But he didn't preach the same service, same sermon. You could come on Sunday morning and sit and hear three different messages, and then come back and hear a fourth message, and come back on Wednesday night and, and hear another one too. Here's a question I have. What else did he do? I mean, did the man sleep? Because I spend somewhere between 18 to 20 hours preparing these messages. Um, maybe you remember this, maybe you don't. But there was back in the day, I was preaching two. One on Sunday morning and one on Sunday night. And it was killing me. Okay, <laughs> It was taking everything I could to, to do that. Now, I might possibly get four. Or excuse me, cut that. That's a, a typo. I might be able to do three for a week or two. But then I would crash or crash and burn. I know I couldn't do four. I, couldn't, I know I couldn't do five. So one thing we know is that Dr. Criswell is clearly a more gifted preacher than I am. That's not a slam against me. That's like saying you're not as good a basketball player as Michael Jordan. But anyways, but did he sleep? I just wonder. But anyways, he inspired me to try to preach through the entire Bible. So again, I'm not running out of messages. I'm just running out of time. 
So with that being said, I plan on tackling 166 of the entire Bible this morning, okay? If you don't know this, the Bible contains 66 different books written by 40 different authors. It was written over the course of thousands of years. So with that, I want to knock out one entire book of the Bible. Maybe you're thinking, does that mean we're going to read an entire book of the Bible and hear a message on an entire book of the Bible? Yes, that's exactly what that means. And so with that, turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Obadiah. Now, I already have my marker set to right where we're going to be, but if you don't have those little cheater tabs right there, I love the cheater tabs, it might be helpful just go to the beginning of your Bible, go to the table of contents, and turn directly to Obadiah, because it is really easy to miss. Um, Obadiah, he's one of the minor prophets in our Bibles. Now, when the Bible, when we call the minor prophets the minor prophets, we don't call them the minor prophets because what they have to say is minor. We call them that because their books are so short. So we have the major prophets, which would be Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations. We have Daniel, Ezekiel. The minor prophets are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Uh, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and then the last book of our Old Testament is Malachi. So right in between Amos and the, the prophet, I think most of us know, if you've been to church a long time, Jonah comes that little-known prophet of Obadiah. There is a very famous proverb where I'm sure that most all of us have heard before, and its main subject is something that Obadiah has a lot to say on. And I want to read you this proverb. Proverbs 16, verse 18. It says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Now we say, there's this old saying that says the pride goes before the fall. And that's what I've entitled this sermon. Not exactly word for word what's in our Bible, but it's close. We get the, the gist of what we're trying to say. You see, pride in our heart it really sets us up for a terrible fall, okay? Does everyone know that God hates pride? And there's some that say, well, you know, God is a God of love, and God's just a big love fest, and it's love, 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 and there's nothing God hates. Not true. God, the Bible says that God hates that which is evil. And I would argue that pride is one of the ugliest of all sins, one of the deadliest of all sins, because think about it, it was pride that caused Adam and Eve to sin and then sin to enter the world initially. Because remember the devil, uh, Pastor Tony Evans, I love him. Whenever he talks about the devil, he calls him slick. He gets away with it. It sounds cool when he says it. So I'm going to say it. Oh, slick came in the garden and he deceived Eve. He said, hey, did God really say don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He said, you know why God said that? Because God's holding out his best on you. That's really the truth. God's holding out his best on you. And if you eat of that fruit, you're going to be like God. So it's like pride welled up in Eve's heart. She said, yeah, that's right. And so she took the fruit, she ate it, and she gave some to her husband that was right there. And the rest is history for us. Pride entered the world. And before this, pride entered Satan's heart. And it caused him to sin. Because there was this time when God created all the angels. There, some people say, well, why did God create the devil? He didn't. He created an angel. And an angel fell. Pride entered his heart. This is what Satan said about himself. 
Satan said, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assemblies. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. Satan essentially said, I will be God. And then God said about Satan, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So when, when Satan said, I will be God, that's when he fell. And the truth is, that's what we say. We say that when we really fill our hearts with pride. We say, I will be my own God. What we're saying is, I don't need you, God. That's what we're saying. We're saying, hey, God, I'm a better God than you, so I will be God. Well, this morning, we're going to look at this little book of Obadiah. And really, he has a lot to say about pride. Obadiah is the shortest book in the entire Old Testament. It's only 21 verses long. And we don't know anything about this author's background. There's, there's also 11 guys in, in our Bible that this has the same name, but there's nothing that leave us, leads us to believe that they're the same man. So who's this guy's parents? We don't know. Where, where was he born and where is he from? We don't know. We really don't know a lot about him. But there is a sense in which Obadiah is really a mini-profile, if you will, a cliff-note version of all the minor prophets. If you like cliff notes, and I'm one of those guys, give me, give me just the facts. Well, Obadiah is for you. Because really, it's a thumbnail sketch of everything God said through the minor prophets. He's talking about judgment that's coming. Judgment that's coming on all uh, these unbelieving Gentiles who oppress God's people. Obadiah is also going to write about the grace of God that's available to, to believers in Israel. And so what's really we're going to see is we're going to see this double thread that it's woven into the book of Obadiah. The, the book, we don't know exactly when it was written, but most theologians suggest that it was written some, sometime around the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 586 B.C. And re there's really two main parts to this book. The first part is verses 1 through 16. That is where God is talking how he is the one that will destroy the nation of Edom. Well, if you're wondering who's Edom, Edom is, uh, is founded by Esau. If you know your Old Testament, in case you don't, I'll remind you, Esau is the twin brother of Jacob. And if you don't know who Jacob is, he's one of the guys that's listed in the, the list of patriarchs of the Jews. There's, there's Abraham who had Isaac who had Jacob. Well, Jacob goes on to have 12 sons, really 13 sons, and they become who the 12 tribes of Israel are named after. Well, Esau is Jacob's twin brother. Remember, he's, he's the red hairy kid that came out of the womb, you know, really first, and his brother was holding on to his hill. That's Jacob. Well, they're both the sons of Isaac. When we get to verse 17, verse 17 through 21, we're going to read about the freeing of Israel and how there's this going to be this establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. But the main point of the book of Obadiah seems to be that, that God's oppressed people, the, the, the Jewish people, they should take courage. They should take courage because God is still the righteous master of the universe. Okay, Think of everything that's happened to the Jewish people. Very long, problem-storied. But despite what goes on to them, they're still God's people. Okay, God is still God. 
And life is going to be very, very difficult for, for God's people. But that doesn't mean they're not God's chosen people. You know, wrongs might be wrong on this earth, but there will come a day when God will set it all right. That God will judge the earth. You're thinking, when's that going to happen? I don't know. But I, it is going to happen. And I have to say, I think this is a very timely book for us to stu- study. Because I don't know about you, maybe you've turned on the news lately, but it sure does seem like our entire world is going to heck in a handbasket real quick. I mean, and it's not just our country, it is global. There, there, there are so many riots in every country, there, there are so many lockdowns, there's economies in other countries seem to be crashing every other day. But no matter what happens on this earth, God is still God. And there's nothing that happens that he is unaware of. So with this, we're going to walk through the book of Obadiah line by line, verse by verse, and I want to make some explanatory observations along the way. And at the end of this book, I plan to bring you five lessons should affect the way we live our lives as Christians. So with that, let's read Obadiah 1.1. It says, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. And a messenger has been sent out among the nations. Rise up and let, and let us rise against her for battle. So the first thing that the prophet Obadiah says, that what I'm going to say, it's from the Lord, Yahweh. This is God himself who's speaking and is concerning the nation of Edom. And this report has gone out from the Lord to all the nations to prepare for battle against Edom. Let me paraphrase what God is saying. God's saying, hey, Edom, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like the way you're behaving. And so I'm the one, this is God speaking, I am the one that's going to call other nations to rise up against you because I don't approve of your behavior. That's really serious stuff when you think of who is speaking here. So God continues his address to Edom, and he's saying, this is what's going to happen. Look in verse 2. Behold... I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly destroyed. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like eagles, though your nests are set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So here in these verses, the Lord tells us the root cause of Edom's impending doom, their pride. Their pride. Their pride has deceived the nation of Edom. And it's making them think, you know, we are so secure up in our houses, up in our cliffs of our rocks. We're like an eagle up in its nest that's so far above the reaches of men that we are safe. The nation of Edom, it is located in what is modern-day Jordan, really the southwestern part of Jordan. And and then their their nation, if you know where the Dead Sea is, there's a strip of land, and and there is uh, the um, Gulf of Aquaba, okay? It's a very mountainous region, if you've ever been there. And so what the Edomites did is they they built their homes way, way up in the top of the mountains, way up in these, these cliffs of the rocks. That's where they chiseled their homes, And so if anyone ever came to attack them, what they would do, they just had an unending supply of rocks, and they would drop rocks on on top of people. 
And so they were safe and secure up in their, way up in their mountains, so where no one could ever come and get them. They were literally like eagles that build their nests up in the cliffs of the mountain. So far away from anybody that would come and try to take their eggs. But then God declares, I will bring you down. So the question, who's going to bring Edom down? God himself is going to be the one to bring Edom down. And so I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, well, if God's going to be the one to bring him down, he's going to take it easy, right? Because God is a God of love. He's going to pull his punches, and it's not going to be that bad, right? Wrong. Wrong. Look at what's going to happen to him. Verse 5. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have, how you would have been destroyed. They would not steal only enough for themselves. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. So this is what God's saying in verse 6. Let me paraphrase it like this. He's saying it's going to be total and utter devastation, Edom. Shock and awe is what it's going to be like when I get through with you. Uh, In other words, what God's going to do to Edom, it's going to be total. You know, when a thief comes to you and breaks into your house, they take the... They take the, the jewels, they take some cash they can get their hands on, but they don't take everything. It's not like they, they take the family pictures off the walls, right? They leave those. When somebody gathers grapes, they, they pick the grapes, they gather what they gather, but there's always some smattering of grapes on the ground. They leave some gleanings along the sides, don't they? God's saying that's not what it's going to be like when I'm done with you. He's saying when I'm, gonna, when I'm done with you, Edom, it's going to be an utter wasteland. There will be nothing left. Verse 7, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you deceive you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread and have set a trap beneath you, you have no understanding. Edomites are going to have nowhere to turn. Okay? They have no understanding of the fact that those who used to be their former allies are now the ones who are attacking them. And really, this is a fulfillment of verse number one, where God sent out their support to all the, the nations come against Edom. Look at verse 8 and 9. I will, I will not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and the understanding out of Mount Esau. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon. So that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Um, This guy that's listed here, Timon, he's actually the grandson of Esau. Okay. Well, evidently, the, the nation of Edom had, had named their capital city after this man. And, and this city must have been known for its culture and also for its military uh, center and its intellects. But this is what God's saying. He's saying, I'm not impressed with your city. This city of yours that you think is so indestructible. And if that's not bad enough, we we have the nation of Edom that that has filled itself with pride. But the the timing of the pride, it's really bad too. Okay, In verses 10 through 14 that we're about to read, we're going to read how the pride in in Edom, it, it showed up at a time when it really should have humbled itself. Okay, Edom really made itself most prideful, we're going to find out, when Israel's being carried off by the Babylonians. 
So Edom is way high up in its nest. It's watching its closest neighbor being conquered by the Babylonians. And, and, and really, they're also their relatives. Remember that Edom and Israel, they're really cousins, if you will. Their cousins are being carried off by a former nation. And they saw, sat and they watched the destruction of their closest neighbor and their cousin, if you will. And what did that do? It made them more prideful. And that happened till God says, you know what? I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. Let's read about it. Verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On that day you stood aloof. On that day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in that day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over their disaster in the day of calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. You know, here's a hard truth, and I think everybody's going to agree with me on this. When a person is just neck deep in pride, what they do is they tend to exalt themselves over others. They'll do whatever it takes to to make themselves just seem better than somebody else. Because it doesn't matter if it's a nation, it doesn't matter if it's an adult, it doesn't even matter. Little kids do this too. Everyone has this, this in common that apart from the grace of God, we, we, we tend to derive, derive pleasure when somebody else fails. It shouldn't be like that. When someone else loses, especially when it's someone we don't like, we kind of like that. Oh, I'm the only one. Whatever, Yeah. Pride, it seems to, to soothe our inadequacies and what it's, it magnifies our successes. Pride makes us feel better about ourselves when really it shouldn't. Because what's happening right now, Edom is relishing in the destruction of Judah. They're gloating and they're boasting because they saw what's happening to their relatives. And they should have stopped. They should have relented. They should have repented. They should have prayed, but they didn't. You know what they did? They looted. Go back and read the text again. If it wasn't bad enough that they're gloating over the destruction of someone else, they go into that same land and looted. Because the Babylonians came in and they took the Jewish people and they took what they could. They kill the men, that's what they do, and they take some of the women and children. They take the possessions, but they can't carry it all, and they leave. So you know what Edom did? They went into to Israel, and they took some of the leftovers, and they took it high up in their little mountain nest, and they closed the doors, and the survivors were screaming, let us in. And they said, no. Obadiah and his people, the Jewish people, they're being carried off by, by the Babylonians, and they know, knew what was happened to them was, was deserved, because Judah had sinned. God promised Judah, if you do this, I will punish you. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just read the little book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk explains it to us. But you know what? The nation of Edom was guilty too. 
What happened, what should have happened is they should have repented and turned. They should have humbled themselves and repented of their pride. They should have cried out to God. And he would have, he, they said, give us mercy, God. That's so the same thing doesn't happen to them. But instead they gloated. And so God reveals to Obadiah, he's not going to let that sin go unpunished. Look what happens, verse 15. For the day of the Lord, it's a pretty important term. The day of the Lord is near all the nations. How many nations, church? All. All the nations. In case you're wondering, this is written in Hebrew. And if we do a, a word study and really get to the meaning of that Hebrew word all, if we translate it to English, you know what it means? It means all. Yeah, this isn't rocket science. All the nations. If you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continuously. They shall drink and swallow and shall be, be as though they had never been. You know, in case you're wondering, karma is not a biblical concept. You know, here, here's, I'm going to give you the simple version to give karma, but this is it. Karma teaches, well, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And so that means if something bad is happening to you, that's because you're bad. And if something good's happening to you, that, that's because you're good. Here's what the Bible says. It's fake news. It's not true. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign. That's what the Bible teaches. That God's actions are not dependent on you. Because the Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. But there is a sense in which God says, you know what? I will punish those who do evil, and I will reward those who do good. But here's the deal. This is what we forget. God's timetable is not our timetable, okay? Uh, it's not like you do something good, and you're immediately rewarded. You do something bad, and you're immediately punished. No, sometimes it takes generations for God to dole out his, what people deserve, whether good or bad. But here's the deal. In the end... God is just. So in this book, we see Obadiah, he's looking into the future. And he's seeing this great day, this day called the day of the Lord. That's a day when Jesus is going to come back and he's going to settle it all. And those, that's a day when all evil will be punished. And those that God calls righteous, they're going to be rewarded. In case you're wondering... God does not call anybody righteous because, based off their behavior. There's more to come on that, okay? But please notice that, that Obadiah doesn't distinguish between the immediate future and, and the distant future. It, it, he doesn't tell us what, what, which, which is which, but there's a sense where it doesn't really matter. Because God's justice is coming. You can take that to the bank. God's, God's going to set everything right in the end. And from what we can see about this, we should draw from this, is that violent nations do not last forever. Someday, God will bring every single one of them down. Make no mistake about it, judgment is coming. We should ask, well, this is a real downer message, Pastor John. This is not making me feel good. Is there any uh, relief? Yes, there is. I'm glad you asked. How can there be any hope? How can we escape the wrath of God that's coming? Habakkuk said it this way, Habakkuk 2.4, Behold, 
His soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. He's talking about the prideful, that prideful man. He says, but the righteous shall live by faith. You know, like I said, Obadiah is this cliff note version of the minor prophets. The righteous shall live by faith. You see, it's faith in God. That God's going to provide a way out. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Jesus will give a, a way out for those that trust him. Read verse 17. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And just so you know, in the Old Testament, you see fire. That's good. It's good. The house of Esau, stubble. That's bad. Real bad. And they shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivors for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those in the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. And those in the Cephalia, that's hard for me to say for some reason, shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The ex- uh, exiles of the host of the people sh- of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the city of Negev. Survivors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Though Esau, or the nation of Edom, they're going to be destroyed by God's wrath. Israel's going to be delivered. That's what what Obadiah is saying. In, In verse 17, it says Mount Zion. That's a synonym for Jerusalem. That means the promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob That means all of his descendants, they're going to possess the land. It's going to happen. Bet on it. You know, but from a New Testament perspective, what we see is that that this fulfillment is so much bigger, so much grander than anything Obadiah saw. That the people of God are not just limited to the Jewish people. We now now know very clearly that the salvation is, is available to all the Gentiles. The salvation... It's available to anybody who plays saving faith in Jesus Christ. Read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. The word of God says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither uh, male nor, nor female. And you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heir to a promise. Not only are the people of God so much numerous than Obadiah could have possibly known, but the fulfillment of the promised land is so much bigger too. Read Romans chapter 3 verse 13. It says, For the promises to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heirs of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. You see, it's not really, it, it isn't implied, but at the very end, Obadiah, verse 21, Obadiah closes with this phrase. I want to read it again. It's so good. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. If we look at those verses in 17 through 21, it's naming cities and these territories. And and so could we imagine that the kingdom of God would only be this little postage stamp of territory that we read about? I would say no way. The square mileage listed in that, it's a little roughly, a little bigger than our county. 
That the final kingdom of God is about the size of Washington County? I would say no way. No way. God's final kingdom is so much bigger, so much grander than anything that you or I could possibly imagine. Read in Psalms chapter 22, verse 28. For the kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous on the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even those who could not keep himself alive. You see, the, the Jewish people that trust the Messiah, they're going to have the land. But really, it's just a little postage stamp compared to the entire kingdom of God. And I don't know about you, but I read a book like Obadiah, and it's so hard not to put our country right there, Right? Because you think about it, look what, what's going on in our country. How could God not judge us? I said this in the first service, it's not in my notes, but in the 1960s, our country experienced a sexual revolution. In the 1970s, we legalized the slaughter of babies in, in the place where they should be the most secure, the mother's womb. In the 1990s, we, we experienced a homosexual revolution. How could God not judge us? What I think we're seeing right now is the judgment of God. Well, what are we to do? Just, just huddle up and go, oh, it's doom and gloom. What are we to do? Well, let's talk about that. That's really the big takeaway. Let me try to draw up five brief lessons here that should affect the way we live. Here's number one. God is the ruler of the world, and he turns the course of nations as he sees. Here, I'm going to give you a paraphrase of what I just said there. God is sovereign. That's it. God is sovereign. So no Christian should be freaking out that this world seems to be careening off into a meaningless catastrophe. It might seem like the, fall, the sky is falling. Maybe that's because God wants to seem like the sky is falling. Okay, think about all the people you know. And think about all the people that have trusted in a Savior other than Jesus Christ. Dramatic pause so you can make a list in your head. God has to remove that thing, whatever it may be, so that more people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, I don't like this as any more than you do, but that's what it takes to build the kingdom of God. D do you remember in the, in the Gospels, there was a day when Jesus told his disciples, his best friends, hey, we're going to get in this boat, and we're going to the other side. Do you remember that? And I just love how the gospel writers, there's one that tells us, hey, and Jesus had his pillow. That Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew about this storm that was coming, and he even brought a pillow. He planned on taking a nap. And so he goes down, he's, he's sleeping sound, and then all of a sudden the storm came. And the disciples are rowing and rowing, and they're exhausting, they're fretting, they're, they're, and finally they're freaking out. And they go to Jesus and say, Jesus, don't you even care we're going to drown? You know, Jesus, you remember what Jesus said? He says, we're getting in this boat, and we're going to the other side. Now, Jesus didn't say there was a storm coming. Jesus didn't say there wasn't a storm coming either. I bring this to, you, to your attention because the same is true for us. Jesus didn't say a storm's not coming. He only said we're going to the other side. That doesn't mean we're not getting there. Heaven's coming. Doesn't mean it's not going to be stormy to get there. Here's the second point for us this morning. Second lesson. Pride is deceptive. Okay? Verse 3 in Obadiah says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. 
You see, pride, it makes us think that we're independent. Pride makes us think we're self-sufficient, that we're invulnerable. And it's all based off a lie. Because the person that gives in to the temptation of pride, they really surrender their capacity to, to think and to feel and to act without deception. Pride distorts our, our, our entire mind. And here's how it really works. This is, let me give it some, some brass tacks for us, if you will. Because we think, you know, this thing is clearly wrong for somebody else, but it's going to be okay when I do it. Because I'm different. I can manage that sin, whatever it may be. That's pride. Isn't that what our kids do? Is that what I did back in the day? Yeah, that's what kids do. We say, hey, don't do this. Make sure you always, always do this other thing. And they go, you know what? What do you know? It's going to be okay for me. But let's not get down on our kids too much because we do the exact same thing to God. Pride is a way of deceiving us. God's told us what is right. And we can either follow it or reap the benefits or consequences of our, our actions. Here's point in the lesson number three. God hates pride, and he will put an end to it. If you go to verse four, Nobadiah says, Though you soar aloft like eagles, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. This is what Jesus says in the New Testament. Let's paraphrase and make it, make it real easy. In Luke 16, verse 15, Jesus says this, For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of the Lord. That's what Jesus said. So often, this is what we think. Well, you know what? This seems so practical. This is really going to work for me. Or maybe we think, well, it's accepted by the majority, so it's okay, right? No. That's a recipe for disaster. Let's not even consider the world, because we could take what I just said there and go a hundred different ways. Let's just keep it to the church. Just keep it to the family of God, just us right here. God has stated very clearly, this is how the church is supposed to operate. This is what the church should be doing. And when we change that, we go, yeah, God said that, but you know, this will be really practical for us. I know God said don't ever do this, but it's going to be different for us, and we're going to take it this way. Slippery slope, because the next step is the church ushers in something that God said, don't ever do this. This is an abomination. Then what's going to happen? The church is going to celebrate it. At that moment, the church has lost all of its uh, impact for the kingdom of God, and it's the beginning of the end. God will deal very harshly when he needs to. Here's the fourth lesson. God will allow you to reap what you sow. Verse 15 says, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return to your own head. If we choose to live like there is no God, he'll grant you your independence in that day of the Lord. Because in the end, here's a hard truth. Everybody gets what they want. And that sounds so good for face value, but it's not. That is a horrible, horrible statement. Because those that say, I don't want you, Jesus. I don't want you. I want nothing to do with you. In the end, they will spend eternity separated from him in hell. When that day of the Lord comes, it's a terrible day. Jesus isn't going to spare that person. 
In case you don't know, there's a day coming that the Bible refers to the day of the Lord. Spoken of in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The day of the Lord is the day when Jesus is coming back. He's going to settle all these accounts. This is what the prophet Joel said about it. And then, and then in the, the New Testament, Peter quotes him. It says, the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. There's a day coming. When's it coming? I don't know. But I believe in my heart of hearts, I really, it's not too long from now. It's coming. When Jesus is coming back, there's going to be this final judgment on the earth, and then everybody that's re- rejected Jesus, they will reap what they sow. Here's the fifth and final lesson. This is where the, we get the good news. Enough bad news, Pastor John. I need some good news. Here's the good news. God made a way of escape from his coming wrath. Verse 17, it says, but, the, but in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. You see, the way to run away from pride is to run to humility. And if you do that, you will not experience the day of the Lord, but you choose. You see, everybody, everybody, you, me, and everybody, we must recognize that we are sinners. We are sinners at our core, and our sin separates us from God. And every single one of us, we have earned hell for our lying, our cheating, our stealing, our thought life alone, just our thought life. We deserve hell. And the the Bible says the wage of sin is death. That means separation from God, separation from God for all eternity. And that should terrify us. But the Bible also says, but yet while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, Jesus was hanging on the cross, paying for our sin. That in the Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Have you ever called on the name of Jesus to save you? If you haven't, I beg you to do that now. You know, how much time do we have? I don't know. But it's my job as a pastor and the job of Christians, the job of the church to keep proclaiming this news until he comes back. That Jesus is God come in the flesh. That he made you and you are made by him and for a relationship with him. That's what Colossians says. And if you call on the name of the Lord, he'll save you. If you've never called on Jesus, I would beg you to do that now. Say, dear God, I'm a sinner. The things I've done, it has separated me from you. There's nothing I can do to make up for my filth and my shame, my guilt. That's why you came and you paid for all of that on the cross. Save me, Jesus. I pray this in your holy, precious name. Amen.